delighted to say my podcast is coming from my home. Not many people come to my home, but I really wanted this lady to come to my home because I am the greatest fan. And I genuinely mean that. You say in this business about I like this. This lady, in my humble opinion, is the best interviewer I've ever ever been interviewed by i feel relaxed she gets the best out of me but she has a history she is a journalist in her own right an award-winning journalist and have been around a long long time and seen huge changes she has been in everyone's life on bbc radio merseyside and across the country uh, and she is part of people's lives and sadly that's coming to an end but we're going to find out now who Linda McDermott is. I am delighted to say she's my guest. Was that a nice entrance? Oh, that was a lovely, just as good as the entrance to your exquisite and remarkable and unique home. I feel like I've come to the palace to see the king. That's really nice you say. I am over the moon that you brought your first front page. Let's find out who Linda McDermott is because people don't know. You are a little bit aloof. You give so much, as I did on Late Night Radio, but you hold an awful lot back, which is great. So we're not going to pry into your private life, but we're going to pry into your life as a journalist. You started where? Well, if you go right back, I started being nosy in Scotland Road. Scotty Road was an amazing community then. You know, people drive past it, this six-lane, you know, carriageway now, and they have no idea what that community was like back in the day uh, when Silla was still there. But in the 60s, you know, th this was it was terrace streets with densely populated houses, thousands and thousands of people. Everybody knew each other. How many pubs? Oh, my gosh, about 150. You know, there's only two left now. And um, the, the parrot, which was opposite where Scylla lived, which she went when she went to, and did that programme with Paul O'Grady about her past life, she went to the parrot and it was just still open. That's gone now. So there's only the Throstle's Nest, which is for sale. And uh, there's one at the other end as well, which used to be the Hamlet, out of 150. And pubs. people listening to this won't realise, the older generation will, it was so near to town, but people never left it. There was two towns, basically, wasn't it? Scotty Road yes. and the centre of town. Absolutely. I had no idea, because you don't as a child, because everything's, in, you know, giant to you, isn't it? So I had no idea we were so close to town. I had no idea we were half a mile from the river if you if you went down the Vauxhall Road end. I had no idea that I'm actually a true scouser because I was born within a mile of Man Island. Mm -hmm. uh, but in those days, you never ventured really out of that community except that our early life in Scotland Road was filled with adventure because both my mum and dad were cultured, learned people. They loved arts and culture. They loved opera. They loved different landscapes. So we went on endless holidays. This is all on, on the one wage. You know, we were in a two up, two down. If they were like that then, were they alien to the rest of the neighbours? Did the neighbours understand them? Not really. Not re Well, possibly they were. I never thought about it really before now you've just asked that question. But I suppose they did stand out. But that's what the kind of family they were from. My grandparents ran the corner shop, which was called the Penny Vantas shop. And they had, um, it was a, like an 
Arkwright, open all hours type store. And my grandfather, who I never met, but I'm told was the most gentlest, funniest, beautiful, a small man in stature, but huge in heart. And he would be passing people bread under the counter while my grandma wasn't looking if he knew that they had no money to pay. And if she's caught him, of course, that's our living, you know. So they lived above the shop. And so dad was from that type of family, five kids. Mum was from a family of seven kids. And again, both grandmothers lived their entire lives in that little half square mile. And, and were linchpins of, of of the community as well. Can you remember when you went, I'm going to be a journalist? I think probably age five. I think that I used to listen to the shipping forecast on the radio in the morning. Bear in mind, I didn't know we were half a mile from the river. And the reason we had the radio on is because we lived with my grandmother at first and she had the radio on from 5 a.m. And it was, in those days, it was just an hour of tone that they sent down the line to the transmitter. And we, so we, we spent the first hour of the morning with just that boo for an hour. And then at five to six came the shipping forecast with that beautiful music sailing by. And then they'd announce where it was raining in all these incredible places you know dogger fisher german bite i knew rock all about where they were but that was enchanting i thought did the mersey ferry go there i must find out and that was the start of an investigative kind so of mind a curiosity mind. right yeah right. And plus the world that my mum and dad opened up yeah. to me just by dint of going to butlins patheli and butlins filey and the isle of man and ilfra coombe in devon we everywhere now you made a statement there which really surprised me which i've got to go back on you didn't know the river was there i didn't wow. as, a, as a little tiny girl not only did we not have one so Scotty Road and the river's Scotland, just there the river is there. just if you wow. you know walk down towards vox the vox all end yeah. well the, the river as the crow flies is half a mile so when family came over to visit from ireland they would just walk up down the road down bellington street with their cases and onto the boat and when they came over from ireland got off the boat and walked up the street to the house it was it, we were that close, but as a little girl, you wouldn't realise. I I had no idea because you never ventured no. really much further than the, than the street on your little bike. Did your folks? Um, how did they feel when you said, I'm going to be a journalist? Well, I mean, it was Dad's dream come true. Oh. Dad was a frustrated journalist. He was the most exquisite writer. He had the most beautiful handwriting. He used to write to people like Mario Lanza, who we loved. He used to write to uh, John Hansen, I think, was, and it was uh, someone he got a reply back uh, saying, I've never seen handwriting as exquisite as yours. Wow. And, yeah, it, it was a, a beautiful, we've still got that letter somewhere and it was it was just yeah I, I think dad's dream would have been times were different then you didn't get the same opportunities and so he couldn't do what he wanted to do but I think in me he tried to nurture that inquiring mind and knowing that no two days of my life would ever be the same if I went into a job in journalism was he was he alive to see um, your career 
uh, build. Yes, he he did. He he lived uh, to see me winning my first awards, to getting my first front page headlines. I can picture him clearly. By this time, we'd moved. You know, we we'd we'd got away from Scotland Road, not too far, but to a three bed semi, uh, which was lovely and homely and loving and beautiful and uh, kept so beautifully by my mum and I remember him the day I got my first front page which I've brought to show you he went across to the neighbours over the road and I can picture him now at the front door of one of the neighbours with a broadsheet paper held out saying look what Linda's written tell us what that is about you've shown I really wish this was visual because you would see this unbelievable front page with these two characters that are like you couldn't paint them something from charles dickens aren't they bear in mind you know this was the 80s and um i was uh, like you and doddy and everybody who learned your trade in the theaters in staying in digs uh, going to venues up and down the country things that don't happen now in the day of overnight stars and 15 minutes of fame well journalism was the same you knocked on doors you went around the community you visited people you sat in pharmacies with the local pharmacist to see what they knew you went to visit you know the the leading people in the community and found your stories that way and I was walking down a street this is in Wigan and I was walking down a street because I was on the Wigan Evening Post walking down a street and it was row after row after row of abandoned houses and there was one light one well light flickering from one window and curtains still up and I thought what's the story here the whole street has gone hundreds of homes boarded up and when I knocked on the door this Dickensian character, this little old lady in a scarf, came to the door gingerly, opened the creaking door, uh, and I explained who I was, and she invited me in, and they were living, her and her brother were living in total darkness in the house that they'd been born in, with the same coal-fired range that her parents and grandparents had used, candles to read by, and the story was that 25 years earlier, they'd been told by the council the house was unfair fit for human human habitation the whole street was coming down and they'd patiently waited their turn a quarter of a century they were of a generation that didn't like to bother people they didn't like to bother authority they were afraid of authority so they hadn't bothered anyone and lived in this frugal sparse way for 25 years that made the front page and I got them rehoused and they were made a big fuss of and everything but those are the kind of things that you could do and that's partly why I went into journalism as a way of finding out things wrong and putting them right. How long have you been a wordsmith? Oh well forever and a day really but I would say 40 years now maybe 35 years because I started writing for the school magazine that's where it started. So you've always you've always done it. Going back to that couple did you realise what you'd done? Did you realise how big that story is and we're now talking about it all these years later, making a difference, which is what you wanted to do? I think they realised that there was a satisfaction in, in seeing that happy outcome and for whatever years they had left, which wouldn't have been many, they were in their 80s then and this was, you know, 35 years ago. So they wouldn't have had long to enjoy 
the putting a fire on, putting a light switch on, you know, having a fridge maybe. Which we take for a, granted. T- totally take for granted. And the thing is that there would have been more like them as well who I didn't find, but I did find them. And there was a satisfaction, but I think what there was really, I think the layers fell from my eyes then. I realised the power of journalism, the power of the written word, you know, the pen being mightier than the sword, that once things appear in print, things can happen that were taking an age to happen otherwise, or perhaps would have been brushed under the carpet and forgotten about. And that was a a powerful feeling that you could do stuff like that. And I went on to do a a lot more things like that. Let's hold that there, because let's just say, from that and the power, and the power of your speech then, I know what you're talking about. Are you distraught or angry or how do you feel about journalism today? Well, it's cut and paste journalism, as we used to call it, you know. Explain that. Well, a press release would come in and it would just be it would just be rejigged, you know, some sub edited and put straight in the paper. There would be no investigation behind it. This wasn't the the fault or the desire of of journalists to suddenly become like this. This was pressure of, you know, commerce and the owners of certain newspapers, you know, just do it that way. You haven't got the time or the resources uh, to be doing that. And so it became a lazy sort of journalism that there are still shining examples, obviously, in our great uh, newspapers and including locally as well, where people do go that extra mile and do investigate. But there's less time to do so. And it's easier now. Social media is just needs to be trolled and any number of stories come up on social media. But before social media existed, the only way to do it was to knock on doors. doors. Trump, to me, has done more damage in the whole world about journalism because he makes out it's all fake journalism. And what people don't understand is, and you've, when I've done your show, put me in my place and said, we have to check that story first. It's different, isn't it? And he's done a lot of damage. He has. Social media has provided a platform for people like that to say exactly what they want. I mean, for a while he was banned, obviously, wasn't he? But he's back on now. And this is the, the difficulty for the everyday man and woman in the street. Who do they believe? What source of information is now unimpeachable? You know, obviously you chose your um, newspaper, your source of information, probably maybe in accordance to what political colour they were. But by and large, you uh, trusted them to tell you the truth. You know, the Guardian, the Mirror, you know, Sunday Times, whichever was your choice. Now, now the strength of their work is diluted by the trash which is coming out every day on social media. And it's very hard for people to pick their way through that. An unpoliced world, an uncorrected world where it seems anybody can assume any identity they want unchecked and put any number of false facts that they want unchecked. So that the people who are actually might be speaking the truth on social media platforms are are lost in that same morass. You have a wonderful reputation within the journalist world. You always have had. And one of your hard-hitting stories, which you brought with me uh, to show me, was fascinating. Um, Tell us about it, because 
it's a hard-hitting story. The next day, the press, your paper, defended you against the police. They did, and I was I was delighted and proud of that as well because you you do stand or fall uh, by what you write uh, in the newspaper world, and uh, m- perhaps more so than ever if it's anything to do with the police. Now, this wasn't in Merseyside where this happened. It was another police force, but they had um, an investigation had been derailed and it was a very serious investigation involving a number of of sex attacks. And it it had gone cold. It was a cold case and it had been parked and buried. And uh, then um, there was a development. I found out through my sources that the main suspect against whom they had a considerable file of evidence but not quite enough to close the investigation had um, hanged himself and I uh, uncovered uh, the trail of this investigation and led the front page newspaper that night with the story and the police went mad and um, introduced me and my investigation said that I was in the wrong, there was no uh, vestige of truth in the in the story. And the newspaper cleared the front page the next night and it was a picture of me and they stood by somebody they called uh, an assiduous reporter who could be relied on to tell the truth and be accurate and they were standing by the story and eventually the police um, agreed that the investigation had um, gone wrong um, in not so many words, in a nicely, um, you know, uh, worded phrase uh, but nevertheless um, it was a moment of great pride for me it was a you know it was, a, it was a, a nervous moment because you had to be sure your facts were watertight your investigation was watertight and your sources were watertight as well and of course you couldn't name your sources no journalist would dream of naming their sources and I had to know for myself that they were an unimpeachable source and um, and they were and, um, yeah, I was very proud of, of that moment. Some journalists went to prison, didn't they, because they would not reveal their sources? Yes, and, and, but it has to remain, even in this changed media landscape, it has to remain a central tenet of, of journalism. Otherwise, where are we? Who's going to tell anybody anything? Mm. You know, that will lead to a light being shone in dark places if they know that their 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 own name is, is going to be put forward as the source. It, it's unimaginable. You can't do that to people. And it would all dry up. You were poached, and by the way, I'm talking to Linda McDermott. Yes, the Linda McDermott. You were poached by the Echo, and they were happy times, weren't they? Oh, my gosh, blissfully happy times. I adore adored my life at the Echo. I adored the team. It was a family, really. Uh, they the, the excitement of, of going in every morning, you know, at 8am, uh, people were hard at work and, uh, you know, looking out for what was going to be that front page lead that day. Um, so features had already been prepared, obviously, as we, we went through the week. The fashion pages, which, by the way, were just tremendous. The women's pages, 
in those days. Um, it, uh, and they were incredible. Diana Paulson uh, was one of the incredible journalists uh, who did that. Uh, Moya Jones was was another, uh, and they were incredible women, incredible people who were because they were very much more senior to me. They were the women who'd really broken the glass ceiling in a male-dominated industry, you know, and held their own. And okay, did women's pages, but did other, you know, general news uh, as well. So these were marvelous role models uh, for me. But I loved every second of my life at the Echo and had no intention of leaving. But as I'd been headhunted from the Lancashire Evening Post to go to the Liverpool Echo, so the BBC headhunted me from the Liverpool Echo. It took me a month after they'd wined and dined me and asked me to come and replace Roger Phillips on the phone-in. Roger was going to uh, City Talk, which was just uh, starting up at that time. And of course, he was the king of the phone-in. There was nobody to touch Roger Phillips. So it was quite a... It was... huge shoes to fill and a big ask of me uh, to swap the written word for the spoken word. But I thought, OK, I'll I'll go and I'll do it. It was a male-dominated world? It was, uh, very much so. And, of course, they'd never had uh, a female uh, to do the phone-in. And, you know, I was in my 20s. I was um, just, you know, working my way up in the newspaper world. I had no intention of going into radio, even though I loved it since I was a little girl listening to that shipping forecast I had no intention but of course the BBC are the three most respected broadcast initials in the world and so this was a chance to uh, to join them see what they were about see what I could do there and of course you would assume that it would be the same audience uh, would be the the echo readers well it was to a, a large degree but not entirely so so it was new territory for me. And um, also what was new was having to guard what I said. So they'd taken me on as being an opinionated, um, hard-hitting journalist and columnist. But you couldn't do that at the BBC. You, you could have no opinion of your own. And you had no awareness that was going to happen? Uh, well, not really, no. It wasn't really explained to me. I kind of found that out, that you had to work within such tight parameters that devil's advocate, which Roger is the master yes. of, of course, always will be, uh, you know, he was the role model to follow, really. Um, he somehow pulled it off. You know, people will always... Uh, say that you are, you know, you, you support Liverpool or you support Everton or you vote Conservative or you vote Labour. They, they, they'll make their opinions based on what you say, but you're actually being devil's advocate. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that was a steep learning curve. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I carried on at the Echo for years being a, a columnist for them. So I kept my uh, column. So I kept a, a foot in both camps. But I have to say, it wasn't the same feeling. It's turning in at eight o'clock, um, you know, on a weekday morning and um, chasing after what would make the front page that day, you know, and hearing the mighty roar of the press machinery in the print hall down below in Old Hall Street. There's nothing that could replace the adrenaline rush of that and the pride of going down, getting the the first paper off the print and seeing your work on the front page. How did you feel, as a journalist, your 
not invisible, but you're not seen. You are these days because of television. But yeah. in those days, you weren't seen. All of a sudden, you go onto radio, you're seen. You're a character. You're a. You, do you know what I'm saying like that? Yes. I mean, to a certain extent, I've been a character and personality at the Echo because anyway, of the, because of right, the high profile right. uh, journalism and because of the you know the front page investigations I'd done because of you know campaigns to save places like Seymour you, Terrace. You save, I was going to say you the, save the houses. The, Tell those, us about that. that. Those beautiful yeah. Georgian houses, um, just as you go down to um, Lime Street Station, and they were um, up for demolition. Um, and it's, it's unthinkable. So Steve Shakeshaft, the award-winning photographer, photographer yeah. Stephen Shakeshaft, came with me, as he often did on assignments, Eddie Barford and, you know, Richard Williams, people like that. The, these were incredible, incredible for cameramen. And um, Stephen took some great shots of me, sat on the steps of these this derelict row of historic houses and uh, and we managed to get them saved so yeah it goes back to the pen being mightier than the sword you know was it mightier than the spoken word um that's something which i still wonder about uh, to this day i still think there is something about the written word um which gets things done more than stuff which hours and hours and hours and reams of radio which can you know just yeah. go in one ear and out the other there's something about the printed word tell me you were working daytime uh, radio how yeah. did it come about the late night phone in and by the way i'm talking to linda and you know we can't even start to touch on your career the awards the the the, the way you've been loved because there's so much to say so much to say and th in fact this is a two-parter we'll do this again but tell <laughs> me when did this famous bit change and you became so important to Hundreds of thousands of people at late night. Well, this has been the greatest privilege of the radio career, actually. The greatest privilege uh, to be part of uh, a community, to be known as Matron. You know, going back to Bessie Braddock, who I, who I thought was a tremendous uh, woman. And um, they regard me as Matron. Somebody, I think it might have even been our much-missed late great friend, Herbert, who coined the phrase, it's the biggest home in the world, this radio show. Uh, and so it became uh, people, you know, formed this strong bond, an international friendship circle grew up out of it, a Facebook fan club grew up out of it, uh, and it took on... Called uh, what? The Under the Duvet <laughs> Club, I know. Got to get that in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Which took on a, a life of its own. And, oh, gosh, we've had, uh, you know, concerts. We've done, um, I wrote with uh, Sid Smith, I wrote um, a spoof of Downton Abbey called Downtown Alley. And we put on mm. nights where people, the same people who listened to the show uh, came and supported these uh, charity fundraising nights, doing plays like that, concerts, all kinds of things. We, we hired uh, the Mersey ferry and um, Herbert came and if we we were setting off from Woodside I remember and Herbert suddenly said to me Linda what's that over there on the other side and as we got nearer we could see 
hundreds of people waving Zimmer frames, waving, waving, you know, walking sticks, everything. It was like a pilgrimage to Lourdes. It was everybody had come because they all wanted to be together, wanted excuses to be together. So this became larger than a radio show. This became a village of its own. How, how many years have you been doing it? 16. Linda McDermott, when did you realise the power of late night radio and how important you became to a huge community which was only local but then went across the country well i think the avalanche of emails that started to come in from people uh, surprised me more interaction than there'd ever been with any other show a late night as you know you've been the king of late night for long enough there is something so special about the night time something so cozy so intimate so one to one that that person who's chosen to put you on in their living room in their home feels that you're there with them and and they want to join in they want to talk to you they 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 want to give their opinion and i think that the more people started to do that whether they were just answering a quiz at first or 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 just you know uh, Entering an opinion that had just been expressed by a member of the panel because it was a, a panel show, a different panel every night. But pretty soon, this community started to mushroom. And then you got people, there was a late lady, there is a lady called Betty Smith, a lovely lady in Neston, who took it upon herself to organise get-togethers for the listeners. So she started to have quiz nights for the listeners. She started to have Christmas lunches at the Holiday Inn and, and I went to them as, as the matron. So suddenly people wanted to physically be together as well and uh, and she used to set the table with everybody's place name and, and uh, little gifts for them and Christmas crackers and stuff and this grew and grew and grew and, and, and pretty soon we were going places together you know. Do you think it's, it's- our community because you and I you mentioned mine we're talking about you but I had a late night radio opposite you but it was never a threat to either of us and I had coffee mornings and film shows and it's got to be Merseyside hasn't it I suppose it has I suppose it has that everybody wants to be a, a part of it which is great and when people came on they would talk about you Linda saying so, and I had no issue with having you because we're on two separate stations. But you were two different audiences. When they talked about you, I let them talk because I loved it. (laughs) It was weird, you know, and I felt yeah. And when the ads on. I used to dip into your show to see what you were talking about. <laughs> and it wouldn't be anything yeah. like you were no, talking about. and that's why it worked. And they went, oh, I'm not listening to you tonight, I'm going back to Linda. <laughs> I used to get, it was weird over that. <laughs> well, of course, you'd be shouting at people, wouldn't you? I don't shout. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were both on air the, the yeah. night of the earthquake, weren't they? <sighs> so... The earth moved for now, both of us. T- yeah, but where were you in the new building then? I was in the yeah. new building. Yeah, in we were in the tower. You were in the tower. I have never. I bleeped myself out. <laughs> I was in delay and I bleeped myself out. I really did bleep <laughs> myself out. Thought it was the end of the world. 
Well, our security man, Tommy, used to come in at quarter to one in the morning onto the radio with a cup of coffee and we'd chew the fat on it. People loved hearing what yeah. Tommy on security had to say. And um, th- this happened while we were live on the microphone. So uh, as this rumble started and the desk started to, sh- to shake, um, it, it, Tommy said, oh, d- don't worry about that, Lynn. It, it, it's only, uh, it's Liverpool one. It's the big dig. It'll be one of them tractors outside. And of course... It wasn't. It was an earthquake. And I knew that because the lines started to light up, which they never did, of course, to one in the morning. And, of course, people were ringing in from, from uh, Chippy and Wallasey saying, you know, their kebabs had just fallen on the floor or the wardrobe and the bedroom had just moved and things like that. So, And we were on radio. That clip of me and Tommy was on Radio 4 the next morning oh. because we'd been live during that earthquake. If I remember rightly, didn't it start in Birmingham? That you did, yeah. it did, yes, and came yeah. up to yeah. us. We've had others yeah. that have been centred in yeah. North Wales, yeah. haven't we? But that one was yeah. was the Midlands. Was you're scary. right, Linda. Is there any time on late night radio, for instance, I'll give you an example. My life changed when James Bulger was killed, and my late night phoning all the time for weeks was about that. Is there something like that that happened to you when you were on radio that you think? I'll never forget that show, or I'll never forget that night. I think that, well, there are so many unforgettable nights, but w- one of them, I suppose, you know, the, to be on air, the, and you probably were on air as well, the night Michael Jackson died. And the thing about um, having international listeners through the internet, of course, was that they, they were getting news from CNN before we were getting it. So I had, they were in a totally different time zone in the afternoon. The ambulance was still in the Michael Jackson compound. So I had listeners emailing me saying, Linda, Michael Jackson's died. It, it, it's all on the news here. But of course, the BBC will not publish anything until it's checked its own sources. So I'm in the invidious position of having people I know telling me the truth of what they're seeing over there. They were sending me screenshots by now and everything. And the frustration of not being able to say that to the listeners. We waited something like an hour before we announced that's, that Michael Jackson had died. That's the difference between you and me. I just said it because we'd been told and I'd been on to Sharon Osborne and Yuri Geller without confirmation because, the, yeah, because I didn't have that power them. behind me of the BBC yes. and to get a yeah. slap on well, the it wrist. It was a sackable yeah. offence, yeah. you know, to, yeah. to do that. So, so I couldn't... So, so I took the chance on that one. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, that was... But, and, and that's the big thing too about Late Night Radio, which people don't understand. We have broken together so many stories that the papers listen to your show yes. for stories, yeah. listen to my show And you're stories, on yeah. your own, by yeah. the way, doing it. You yeah. haven't got a team no, that's there no, no, no during one. the daytime, yeah. Yeah. all running around like headless yeah. chickens, getting different we aspects are together. We our own bosses. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was what we we have to then ring who we know, yeah. in your case, all those names you just you just mentioned, you know, to, to verify things, to get and, and that could be whether it's, uh, you know, somewhere's flooded, you know, know something's broken out in the queue there's been a massive power cut you are that lifeline mm. you are that voice of reassurance and no more so than we were during the the, the frightening alarming covid lockdowns which were eerie and and disconcerting for people particularly if you're on your own no guests because you weren't allowed guests no not you weren't at all. allowed anybody not in. At all. and of course your show was 
guest base. They all sat around the table. It was all yes. part of the night. Yes. It was so important. So all of a sudden, and as you mentioned that, also you became even more important. You actually kept people alive who would have wanted to die without Linda McDermott at night on Radio Merseyside and then across the country. You kept people alive. Some reassurance, I think, through a, vo- a familiar voice that the the world hadn't ended. You know, you, you, it felt like it. it. It did feel like it. It's it. It's hard to. We're, we're just kind of, I think, assessing now uh, the post-COVID mental health crisis that developed during that time. It had a desperately awful effect on a huge number of people. I know people who were driven to the brink of suicide because of the different um, layers of things that that it, that it brought up. Being on their own, you know, being uh, isolated, um, socially isolated as well, uh, as well as being frightened of something that was beyond the world's control, it would seem. So, yes, that one voice in the night becomes that lifeline, because if they're there, it must be okay. You know, life's Mm. still normal. There'll still be light at the end of the tunnel. But also scary for you. You were going in to a ghost city. yes. Driving to, through ghost towns, people can't imagine what it was like, can they? Eerie. It it was like being the last one left alive. Some nights it was it, because there was literally no car to be seen. The taxis weren't operating. It, it, it was it, it was abandoned. There was just the odd seagull around, and not a sound. Total silence, like tumbleweed blowing down the street. The Albert Dock, all in darkness, not a soul around. And then you go into an abandoned, deserted building because nobody else was allowed to be in, except somebody would come in, but they weren't allowed to come in to my studio. They had to sit in behind the glass answering the phones. And and you switched on the equipment and suddenly you were this one voice that people were hearing in the middle of all this chaotic meltdown that was going on, these frightening pronouncements by the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson, you must not do this, you must not go out, you and only for essential medical, you know, supplies or, or shopping. And it was a horrendous time. Could you imagine going back to your early journalist days when you knocked on doors, what you would do for a living? Because you wouldn't have been able to knock on doors. There'd have been no social media and we were closed down for two years. It was an extraordinary time, really. Yeah, and to, and to think of that kind of era, well, yes, it, it couldn't operate. And actually, um, COVID, as you know, has changed so many things. So, so much changed, so much changed in radio. We brought in four-hour shows um, so that instead of the tapestry of shows that there used to be, you know, something for everybody. You'll remember there would be a folk programme, there'd be a country music programme, there'd be, you know, Brian Jake's doing Jakestown, there'd be a... a Bob Bob Azerdia's <laughs> manifesto, the political programme. Right now, a chance for local writers and po- uh, poets. Um, Angela Heslop's Art Waves, you know, reviewing the cultural scene. Ramsey Campbell doing reviewing the movies. You know, an Asian programme, uh, uh, you know, for the, the subcontinent, a Chinese programme, something for everybody this rich tapestry of radio 
that there was Alan Jackson's early evening sports chat uh, programme. All of this, that was a different world. That was then. And that's all gone now. So we have three, four-hour shows which are, you know, uh, carved into across the country, morning, uh, the, the breakfast, sorry, mids, as they're called, mid-morning, and then afternoon drive, and, and that's it. So, and all that tapestry around them that made people gravitate to the radio to see what was on, because something different would be on, that's all changed. That's changed dramatically, not for the better, as far as... I'm concerned. We've had the best days. Um, Reluctantly, I'd have to to agree. And the best days in journalism, I think, as well. I really do believe you did. I would have to agree. I would have to agree uh, with that. And I'm so glad that we saw those days. I'm so glad. It was irreplaceable. Different world. It was incredible. And, and, And going back to the echo for a second, it was the family feel. That's what I love. When I went in to see anybody or went in for an interview, you were part of a family. You went, oh, I want to be this. That's why you love the job so much. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. And and be with people who were buzzing and at the top of their game. These were incredible talents as well. And, and, you know, to see in every community, in every district of of Merseyside, people waiting for the echo, waiting for the van drop, waiting for that bundle of papers to be thrown out of the van, the news agent cut in the string and queues of people yeah. buying the Echo and, and waiting for the Pink Echo on a Saturday. I mean, I started out as a football reporter, one of the few, there were four or five of us at most in the entire country. Remember when I said about a male-dominated landscape? So this was a novelty, a girl doing football, but I was from football mad family. I knew the offside rule when I was five. So, <laughs> you know, when, when I started at the, um, it was called the St. Helens a group of newspapers when I started in a weekly. You had to have an indentureship in those days, an apprenticeship. You had to have diplomas in law and, and uh, you know, all kinds of things on top of your academic qualifications. So um, the, the sports editor had, had resigned the day I started. So the editor was in a mess and said, well, you're from Liverpool. You must know about sport. So I, I got the sports pages to do. You shocked. But, um, kind of, but 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 not because I had my dad, who was a football authority, um, to come with me to the matches. So he came with me. Uh, to, it was the lower league matches, obviously the likes of Skem United, and Dad would come with me, and it would 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 sit in the stands, and he'd say, "Now you know, you're looking for you're looking for that kind of phraseology to 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 use." So you know he'd uh, you know so and so parried a shot or was caught square or you know I remember. So he was living through you again. He was. He was. He was. He was exercising his his ambition to be a reporter through me. Uh, he showed me the best turns of phrase to use that that football readers would like to to read about. I, I remember one of his one of his opening lines once was, "They say lightning never strikes twice, but at White Moss Park on Saturday, you know the wow. the opposite was so and so." Eddie Smith proved the the exception to the rule, and it was good. I remember the editor uh, shouting out in front 
front of everybody. This match report is first class. And of course, that was, it was my dad, you know, and I went home and told my dad and he was, he was chuffed. So he was a journalist in the end. He was, he was. And, and, and he taught me more than anybody. Yeah how to uh, so that was fantastic you know being a football reporter at that time what a what a novelty Linda we could talk forever I've got to finish with this and say that your family are losing you uh, I don't know what to say no it's uh it's a very sad time it's been a traumatic time behind the scenes um because the BBC have not behaved well they've not behaved honorably um, and uh, I, I just get the sense that a community is feeling abandoned because they are being abandoned. Uh, there are thousands of letters of protest, letters to the Times that Sir Phil Redmond uh, has written, Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones standing up for local radio because he listens to his local radio station where he lives in Kent. Uh, none of that. MPs, questions in the Commons, uh, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport raising uh, questions about it. None of it has made any difference because, you know, there is a mission on Underway, and that is to go where life is leading in terms of the Spotify generation and the streaming generation. And none of us are Luddites. None of us deny that the digital revolution is coming at us thick and fast and artificial intelligence is coming fast down the track as well. So it's not about wanting to hold back progress or inevitability, but it is about people and it is about what people need in terms of public service and if public service is no longer a luxury we can afford through the license fee then we've reached a very sad point in time and a lot of people are going to miss you greatly because you are part of their life you're a family member i always remember and it's it's a strange analogy but when hilda ogden left coronation street I mourned her and people are going to mourn you because they won't know how to contact you. I hope the next chapter in your life is going to be spectacular. I want to say again, as I started, to me, you're the greatest interviewer. You are the most relaxed person, but you get the job done in the most magical way. And I've been thrilled to be allowed to be a guest on your show. What do you say to your listeners to finish off? Um, that I have loved the honour of being in your home with you. I've loved the honour of the way you've treated me, the way you've treated me as a friend, the way you have sent Christmas gifts, Christmas cards and galore and Easter eggs and just passed a packet of eclairs in, you know, to, to, to reception, uh, a cake to share between us, the way you've regarded everybody on each of the different panels each night as friends you're inviting to be round your table in your home. You've taken us into your heart and soul and regarded us as family. I know that for a fact. And we regard you as family and we're losing you just the same as you're losing us. And I want to thank you. In, in Despite being a wordsmith, I haven't got enough words to say to you what you have meant and will always mean. 
Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P-Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.